comes from Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I command, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God, belong, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth and all that is in it, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, your, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, all, the great mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you the great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And now, our New Testament reading comes from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been and who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things. 
things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, we require your wisdom and your spirit. We know that your word is true and faithful. And we pray that this word would enter into not only our minds, but our hearts. That we would see your truth and understand. That we would be built up, encouraged. That we would be drawn to the mature doctrines of Christ. To growth in grace in him through your love. We pray for your spirit upon us that we would grow in our assurance of Christ and God's love for us. We pray that these words would be clear. That your name would be lifted up and glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I had a few friends back in Florida who loved rock climbing, and they had a gym, a rock climbing gym. When you go inside, you have kind of the beginner section over here. There's loads of little grips that you can hold on to and, and places to put your feet that are very easy to get a hold of. And as you progress down, there's a very much, it gets more and more difficult. The, the grips are fewer and fewer. And then there's also inclined walls, so you're almost hanging backwards on yourself. But even as a a beginner, a first-timer going up there, um, on the easy wall, it can be pretty terrifying, especially if you've never done it before and you're not really great with heights. But it doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert. If you're climbing, you get a cable. That cable is attached to you by a harness. Because when you get up to the top, or whenever you give up, you jump down and rappel down, and you have to put all your weight on that cable. The beginner and the expert relies on this cable to get down and for safety. I remember at one point being about halfway up a wall, and I couldn't get any higher. I could not reach the next area. I could not move forward. And then when I looked down, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't climb down either. And even though I may have only been 15 feet up, when I looked down, I might as well have been 50 feet up because I was shaking and terrified and I couldn't hold on any longer. I did not have an assurance that I was safe, even though there was a cable holding onto me that would support my weight, that was designed to do so. I did not look at the cable I look down at the ground. Scripture does not teach us to sit in fear and uncertainty. Rather, it calls us in 2 Peter to make your calling and election sure. 
In 2 Corinthians 13, it says, Test yourself to see you are in the faith that Christ is in you. Passages like these push ourselves to really closely examine. Are we resting in Christ? Or are we resting in something else? Something that we have done? Is your heart turned toward repenting from sin and toward God? Or is this just a show where you're going through the motions? These are important questions that we have to to wrestle with. And the biblical authors give us so much comfort and support in building up. This is how you know you may have certainty. But they don't do it unequivocally. They also include warnings because of the danger of false assurance. They do not want anybody to think that they are in the kingdom if they're not in the kingdom. They want you to know where you stand so that if you're not in the kingdom, you may become in the kingdom. You may turn and be in the kingdom. don't see it as a call to Christian maturity or a call to assurance in salvation. We read that warning portion, and that just overshadows everything. It just blacks out everything else, and we don't see his purpose. And because of that, we miss the entire message that he is trying to give us. We miss out on the beautiful assurance of hope by being called to maturity that would be effective, that would call us as Christians to be active and confident, patiently waiting for our inheritance. It is a frequent and normal part of the Christian walk that many people will ask questions like, how, how can I truly know that I'm saved? Is, is my faith real faith? Or perhaps, how can a holy God love someone like me? And one of the scariest is, what if I have committed the unpardonable sin? Today we are going to look at the types of assurance so that we can probe and analyze where it is that we stand. There are three types of assurance Usually when we say assurance, we're talking about the confidence that we have salvation, that we, that we are safe in Christ. But the first type of assurance is the assurance of Christ. Are you certain that Jesus is the Savior of men, that he is the Son of God, that he is a pure and perfect sacrifice? That is the first type of assurance. Do you have assurance of that? The second type is the assurance of faith. Am I assured that my faith is real faith? And the third kind of assurance is the assurance of God's love. Yes, I understand, I believe about Christ, but does God really love me in particular? First and foremost is the assurance of Christ. This is the most important assurance that we can have. This is the confident knowledge of who Christ is. He is the Son of God. His work 
that he came and became man, that he died and rose again to seek and to save sinners. And his sufficiency, that he is actually a good and worthy sacrifice, that he is perfect and beautiful and powerful enough to pay for your sin. Is he sufficient? Or are you somehow greater than Christ in how you've sinned? The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And you may hear that and say, What? Move on beyond Christ? That doesn't make any sense. And that's not what he is getting at. And we get that from his context. Because the first five chapters of the book of Hebrews, this writer is only talking about Christ. Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is the, is the basis and the, the fulfillment of your salvation. Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is the great high priest who has sympathy for you. He is, after, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he abruptly, while he's talking about Christ as a priest, he abruptly interrupts himself as an aside, and this is the passage that we're reading, and he rebukes them just at the end of chapter 5, saying, basically, I am so frustrated that I have to teach you this. By this time in your walk, you should be able to teach this. You, don't, you shouldn't be needing these instructions from me. And then he gives this passage, and do you know what he does right after our passage? He resumes talking about Christ as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He didn't move beyond Christ. He didn't stop talking about Christ. What he's talking about here, and what he continues talking about, is not, it's just the elementary part. He doesn't want you to stop and leave the doctrine of Christ. He wants you to move beyond and build upon what you know, the basic doctrines of repent and believe and be baptized. That Christ is going to come back again and judge the living and the dead. Move on to the mature doctrines of Christ. This can be seen in how we study mathematics. When you first start studying mathematics, you, you learn to count. One, two, three, four, five. And you learn addition and subtraction, division and multiplication. Now, if, you're, if you get past the fourth grade, and you just say, I'm just going to keep those and that's it, that's all I'm, I'm ever going to know, then you know the elementary doctrines of mathematics. But if you do go beyond that, if you study trigonometry or algebra or calculus, and you go on into the mature doctrines, quote-unquote, of mathematics, do you leave Addition and subtraction? No, they're all the more important. Because if you cannot add and subtract, divide and multiply, you will only ever come to wrong answers and wrong conclusions and misunderstandings about what calculus is. You need those elementary beginning things. You build upon them. They grow into the deeper knowledge. This is the same with the elementary knowledge and doctrines of Christ. We learn these things in the beginning in our, in our catechism, in our, in our all about faith class. In fact, actually all our all about faith class might go a lot deeper than, a, than, <laughs> than that. Um, 
but all the future things, all the things that he talks about in this book about who Christ is is built on that foundation of the elementary doctrines of Christ. And so we do not leave them in the sense of like, well, we don't need to talk about repenting. No, 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 no. Now we talk about what repenting looks like and why we repent as a Christian. Now that we're on the inside, like, how, how does the gospel apply to my life? We're looking for the deeper doctrines of Christ. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, the basic knowledge of Christ, those, element, those elementary doctrines, if you know those in your head and you are sure that they are true, if I'm to ask you, do you, do you believe that Christ is the Son of God? And you can say yes. Do you believe that he came to seek and to save sinners? Yes. Do you believe that he died and rose again? Yes. Then what you have is the assurance of Christ. And that is the basis of salvation. You don't need to know every single thing about Christ, but be confident in those basic truths that he calls us to believe in. Now, if you do not have that level of assurance of Christ, then I don't want you to be uncertain or deceived. If you do not have that level of assurance, then you do not have Christ. You do not have his salvation. You do not have his Holy Spirit. I don't say that as an attack or an insult, but as a plea. If you don't have that level of certainty that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior then I implore that you look to him closely and fervently and call out to him. If you were a rock climber at this point and you're looking down and seeing the ground and you say, you know what, I need to look at the rope, and you look up and it's not there and there's no rope, this is the time to start calling out and saying, I need some help. But if you are sure of who Christ is, then the next step that the writer of Hebrews is pointing us to is to build upon that assurance. Build upon that elementary knowledge, knowing who he is, knowing how he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, knowing what he has done for us in particular in becoming a man, though he did not have to, Understanding his great gift for you and his promises, his particular words on his intention and who he is and what he has done. Christ is the basis of your salvation, and he is also the basis for proper assurance of that salvation. And we're going to talk about assurance of faith and assurance of God's love, but this never stops. This, we never leave this because if you have those other things, if you are just sure that you have faith and you are sure that God loves you but you're not sure about Christ, then you're deceived. This is the basis. This is the thing that we need to have. And so if you are sure of Christ and yet you still feel that nagging uncertainty in your heart, that questioning and doubting. Am I really, is my faith real faith? Does God truly love me? Then what you struggle with is either, is either 
the assurance of faith or the assurance of God's love. And these go hand in hand because if you have one, then you have the other. And it is possible for a Christian who knows who Christ is and who has his salvation applied to him to have uncertainty and doubt and fear concerning these things. It's not so true with the assurance of Christ, but with these two, it is possible. And many true Christians are afraid because they have not grown in maturity to the point of having that assurance. And that's not an insult to them to say that they need to grow in maturity. We all need to grow in maturity. So in discussing the assurance of faith, that's the question that I, I know that Christ is real. I know that he's the son of God, but I don't know that my faith is what the Bible really talks about. In a passage, the passage we read, it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. There's a picture here of somebody who has been enlightened. That word uh, is correlated in the early church to baptism in catechism class. They've been given those basic ideas. They've received the sign and seal of the water upon them. And they have all these other things that represent taking part in communion and seeing those amazing gifts that the Holy Spirit gave in the Holy Church of healing and casting out demons, all of these things. And yet they fall away. Because well, James gives us, the book of James gives us a little bit of clarity in this when he talks about faith. In James 2, he says, well, you show your faith by your words, but I show mine by what I do, in essence. And then he follows this up saying that even the demons believe and shudder. So there's, he's, he's pointing to a type of understanding, a head knowledge, that you can affirm something and you're not actually trusting in the Lord for salvation. It is just a fact in your head. It is not a resting in Christ that is in your heart. And this is a scary thought. They know that Jesus comes to seek and to save. But they don't know that their faith is good enough faith. And I need to reiterate that, reiterate that the basis of our assurance and salvation is Christ. You must start from assurance in Christ, who he is and what he's done. Is he strong enough? Is he a perfect and worthy substitute? Is he a loving God? And then we build up the other, other evidence that Scripture points us to. One of the pieces of evidence that Scripture points us to is our seeking obedience. We hear that a little bit in James, but we also see it right here in Hebrews. In the verse before, in chapter 5, right before our passage, he says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's calling for a maturity 
that has not just to do with memorizing knowledge and facts in our head, but a discernment in our heart of good and evil. Second Peter also points us here uh, in chapter 1. He calls us, hey, you need to grow in virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And then he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's the picture of somebody that is saved but doesn't know they're saved. They don't have confidence. They are so nearsighted that they have forgotten that they've been cleansed from their sins. And he follows that up saying, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. We are called to be fearless Christians who have confidence in Christ. And it is through that that we are able to serve joyfully. This is a not just a head knowledge, like I said, but a knowledge of moral knowledge and life practice the desire to love Christ's commands to serve and grow in him this is not a way to grow in favor with God or to try to earn your salvation in any way it is by grace alone you are saved by grace alone through faith alone as we hear in Ephesians chapter 2 but then again it says in In verse 10, you're saved by grace to the works that God has prepared you to. And it's through serving in that way that you grow in maturity and confidence in the faith. You don't get closer to heaven, but that is how you grow in the faith. This practice will not save your soul. Only Christ can do that. And I do want to warn against the idea that, that if you just work really, really, really hard, you can convince yourself you're saved because that is false assurance. It doesn't matter how good your works are. You don't get to check off all these boxes and say, see, I'm a good person. I get to go to heaven. The basis is Christ alone. And then if you seek maturity and assurance, then you follow his commandments and the things that he has called us to do in obedience and love and joy in what we have. And if you're lacking assurance today, neglecting this discipline might be one of the reasons why. The last type of assurance is the assurance of God's love. I know that Jesus came to seek and to save sinners, that he is perfect and worthy, and that he loves people. I just don't know that he loves me as a me in, in particular. People may ask, how can God love someone like me? Well, how will I how will I know that he loves someone like me? Our passage here, I just want to reiterate is calling us to hope. 
is calling us. He says that we speak in these way, this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name, serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope. That full assurance of hope is what he wants for each of his readers, what he wants for each of you. Yes, we need to test ourselves to look inward. Am I resting in Christ? But if we are assured of Christ and who he is and what he's done, then we may have that full assurance of hope and joy. And the evidence that is often overlooked in this passage is repentance. He says, for that person who turns away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance and that is a terrifying phrase if we only think about it as a warning. But it is also a promise of how things work. We read that and we say, you cannot, uh, if you turn away, you cannot be restored to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. What this is describing is a turning away from God that is so absolute so wrathful and vile and repudiating the sacrifice of Christ in such a way that it puts him on open display in shame. It is most likely referring to, as this is written to the early church, to a, a Jewish congregation, that they would have, in that time, they would have gone back to the old sacrifices. And they would have put up their lambs and animals for slaughter. Those old sacrifices pointed forward to a perfect and pure sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And so to go back to that way of life, to reject Jesus and say, no, this is not a good enough sacrifice. He is not good and perfect and pure enough. I need more of this. Those things pointed forward to the Son of God to be to to be killed on the cross. And so to return to that would be to call for his death again. If you are in fear that maybe this applies to you, let me assure you that it is impossible for anyone who repents and rests in Christ be kept outside of him. You see, it is not the coming back that, sac that, that, is, that is the problem. The problem is that they will not be restored again. In the Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 10 that we read, God commanded the people to circumcise their heart. You need to be changed on the inside. Don't just do the outside thing, do the inside thing. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Verse 6, later in that same book, he promises, I will circumcise your heart. I will make the inner change happen in you. So it is a command, and it is also something that God provides. And it is the same today with repentance and faith. If you have trust in your heart 
place in Christ, if you hate your sin and turn from it, even though not perfectly, if you want to turn away from it, that is something that only God gives. If those things are present, that means that God is reaching out to you. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart. And that is only done through his grace and love being given and applied to you. So do not be afraid. Do not fear if you are repentant and trusting in Christ. If you look to him. The difference is something that we see in A.W. Pink. He has this quote where he says, Multitudes desire to be saved from hell who are unwilling to be saved from sin. And so the dividing line in our heart that we need to draw and examine is, am I repenting because I'm afraid of the consequences of my actions? Or do I hate my sin because God hates sin? And he, and he has called me to this. If you seek to flee your sin, even though you struggle, if you hate it, not just the consequences, but you hate that you sin, this is the evidence of Christ in you. Throughout Hebrews, he repeats again and again and again, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But turn to him, run to him, cling to him, rest in him. Turn from sin and rest in Christ. That cannot happen to somebody who God is not calling to him. We've talked through the assurance of Christ, the assurance of faith, and the assurance of God's love for you. You must have Christ. You must have that assurance. He's the basis of salvation and the basis of your assurance. Make your calling and election sure by seeking to know Christ more intimately. Build upon those elementary doctrines. Strive to grow in your moral discernment, to love what God loves and hate what he hates, to live a life of repentance, admitting that sin is sin, running from it and toward God. Because God alone gives us the ability to believe in Christ and turn from sin. And if he has done that for you, then there is no reason to fear. And there is every reason to rejoice. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we are humbled by your awesome plan of salvation that though we were sinners, rebellious against your word, against your truth and law, you saw and chose to love us. You sent your son to die for us, to call us, 
to change us from who we were into your beloved children. Lord, we pray for strength and assurance for those who you have called. Lord, that they would not be trapped in doubt or fear, but that they would be able to call on you in joy and peace, knowing that it is their, des their desires for you, their love for you, only comes through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for strength of faith for them. And Lord, we also pray for any who are not in you, Lord, that they would see that true basis of salvation in Christ and that they would turn and repent from sin and believe and rest in him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.